0: first lesson today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For those who want to follow us, it's uh, on page 181 of your Pew Bible New Testament. So we are always confident, even though we know while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive Recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our second reading from the day is taken from 1 Samuel 15, just the last verse in that chapter, and then we jump on into 16. So it's first 1 Samuel 1534, all the way through 1613. If you remember, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about Samuel and Hannah and the beginning of the monarchy for Israel. So this is the story of the anointing of David. Listen with fresh ears. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord says, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. From that day forward, Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. This is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I get away for a week and I can't talk anymore. I apologize. So to start our service, this being Father's Day, I thought I would lift up something that has become a father's thing, there's a thing called dad jokes. Dad jokes. There are words, wordplay, they are puns. My daughters will tell you if you go online that there's whole categories. You can go to YouTube, you can go anywhere um, and, and see dad jokes in full action. So here's a couple to lift up and to celebrate our dads. And I, I will need your help on this, since we have no drums in our sanctuary. Everybody knows when you tell a good one-liner, you need a good, good rim shot, good drum shot. So I need you to go, but dum after each one. Ready? Let's practice. ba dum Okay. Here we go. What did the buffalo say to his son when he dropped him off at school? Bye, son. ba dum it's a buffalo, it's a bison. What do you call a dog that can do magic? A labracadabrador. But thank you. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? 10 tickles. 10 tickles. But thank you. A termite walks into a bar and asks, is the bar tender here? But um so he wants to eat it and he's asking about the wood. I don't want anybody to feel bad because they may not. Okay, and the last one, the last one, everybody can use if you're going to lunch today. So get ready, you can practice. If there's several families together and there's several dads, you can decide who gets to say it. So if you're seated and your server comes to you and she may say this family seated at the table server comes over looks at the father and says, I'm sorry about the weight I'm sorry about your weight and the father says are you calling me fat sorry about your weight sorry about your weight (laughs) perfect pun good dad joke I hope to hear uh, uh, that this has happened this afternoon for lunch today I'm sorry about your weight. Are you calling me fat? (laughs) So that tells us some of who our dads are. We love our dads. They are fun at times and playful at times, just as our moms are. We love their sacrifice for us. So we thank our dads because we know at the core of who they are for their flaws, they have great hearts. They are special in our lives. Past, present, and future dads are on our minds today. In this passage, it also talks about the hearts of who we are, what it means to be faithful, what it means to be a child of God. As I said before, two weeks ago, we had kind of walked through the beginning of the Old Testament and looked at how the monarchy starts. Real quick, if you remember, Israel didn't have a king and they wanted a king. Everybody else that was continuing to uh, invade them and kick them around a little bit, they said, All these people have kings and we don't have kings. And God said, You have me, you don't need a king. And they said, Well, we want a king. And Samuel, the prophet at that time, God said through Samuel, Well, go tell them if they have a king, they're going to have to give up uh, their their children for the army to support the, the palace and the monarchy. A king can take the best of the flocks and the crops and will be taxes and on and on and on saying, you sure you want this? We want a king. We want a king. Okay. Okay. So God chooses Saul. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Kind of one of the the lesser seen tribes. And God or, or the scripture says that Saul is head and shoulders above the rest. You know that phrase when you're talking about somebody who excels at what they do, who's good at what they do, head and shoulders above the rest. That comes from 1 Samuel 9 in describing Saul. So he was chosen for what we know. God chose him, but the description they give is not about what kind of person he is. It's a physical description. He was tall. He was mighty, great in battle. That's who you want your leader to be, and they did. One of the reasons they wanted and cried out for a king because a king was a military leader and they continue to get occupied and sacked and beaten down by these other countries that have bigger and better armies than they do and a king for a leader. So understand it, we can't fault them too much. (coughs) Excuse me. So God chooses Saul and Saul does his thing for a while and then it goes bad for Saul because he refuses to listen to God in one specific place. After Saul is wiping out a particular coming through war, God says, I want you to wipe them all out. Their crops, the men, the women, the children, everybody, the kings leave nobody alive. I know hard passage in itself, but very different to our current ears than the culture and the world was at that time. Very different now than then, but it's what we are are told God says. And so Saul, like we we might do, wipes out everybody except some of the choice cattle and crops and the king, a gag, A-G-A-G, the king. And the Lord is displeased and sends Samuel to him and says, what What are you doing? We told you, God told you, you wipe everything out. You don't save a thing. Everything is to be destroyed so they know the power of God and that God is here in this place. And Samuel realizes he has done the wrong thing, tries to repent. God doesn't really let him. So at that point, Saul begins to decline as a leader. And the spirit of the Lord ceases to be with Saul. And there's a lot of speculation that at this point, Saul kind of become, loses his spiritual focus, loses his mental focus. And if you remember early in the relationship of Saul and David, which we'll get to a little bit later, David plays the harp, plays the lute for Saul to calm him down when the evil spirit comes upon Saul. Only David can calm him through his music. So things start to go bad for Saul here. And God all but abandons Saul for his mistake of not listening and obeying God in this military command that he gave him. So now the shift moves. The monarchy has begun. Saul was the first king. And God begins by, uh, we, we see the end of chapter 15 and tells Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Again, God not so compassionate with our friend Saul here. He, he made his mistake, I am moving on, let Saul go. God is saying to Samuel, let's move on, I have plans. And so God tells Samuel to go to, uh, to Benjamin, to that tribe where they are, and says, no, I'm sorry, he tells him to go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, where do we know Bethlehem from? Where Jesus was born. Right, and why is that important? Well, it fulfills a, 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 a prophecy in Micah 5 that says the Messiah shall come from little town of Bethlehem. So this connection is important. God tells him to go to Bethlehem. There's a man, Jesse, with a bunch of sons. I'll tell you which one is going to be the next king. And Samuel says, okay, but Saul is still the king. And if I go and anoint somebody else to be king, he's going to kill me. God says, okay. Well, take, take a heifer, take a cow with you. Go on up there and tell them you're going to do a sacrifice, which is one of the things that prophets of that time did. They would travel and help people atone for their sins through this physical sacrifice of these animals that would lead ultimately to Christ as the last sacrifice that would need to be made on behalf of humankind. And just tell them you're there to perform this sacrifice. Okay. Okay. So, Samuel goes, takes the heifer, and the elders meet him out of town. Apparently, you didn't want a prophet to come in a way that was not peaceable, because it says they were trembling when they saw him coming. If he was seen as the voice of God, sometimes that voice isn't always the one you want to hear. Often that voice says, as we see throughout the Old Testament, prophets have a hard job of... Relaying God's message, and often that message is you have turned away, you need to come back, or bad things are gonna happen. That's not a message folks often want to hear. Believe me, I know. So they're not sure what Samuel's intentions are. He comes to the gates, says, Are you they say, Are you are you coming peaceably? He says, I am. Relax. Take a breath. Everything's fine. I'm coming peaceably. I've come to do a sacrifice with Jesse and his boys. So why don't you all come to Elders and and other important people in the city, y'all come too. We'll all do our thing. We'll do this big sacrifice together. Fine. So they go to Jesse's home. And there are eight sons. Let's just pause for a moment right there. Eight sons. Can you imagine? Some of you might. You have one or two or three or four. That's a pretty big deal. Eight. Can you imagine the trip to Disney World, Jerusalem? <laughs> My camel smells. He's touching me. I want to stop for a homicicle. <laughs> on and on. Finally get to Disney World, Jerusalem. Hey, boys, you want to ride Circumcision Mountain? Oh, no, no, Dad. Thanks. We're good. <laughs> We're good. We're going to go to, it's a small temple after all, hang out there. You, you go, you go. Eight sons. Of course, back in the day, that's what you wanted. That was the goal. Why? Because the, the males were seen as being more important, producing heirs, although it, it, takes, it takes two to tango. Everybody's got to do their part in that process. But to have eight sons was would have been a, a place of stature and uh, importance and celebration for that family. So Jesse's got eight sons. And so this becomes kind of a, a beauty pageant as one by one, you know, he could have come and set, set them all out and they're, which one, got? No, gotta be a little more dramatic. So he brings them out. And Jesse, excited, One of his sons is going to be the king. Wow. We don't hear about that. That is a pretty good Father's Day gift. My son is going to be king. Which one? We don't know. That's the tension of the story. So Eliab, first one, probably went in descending age order, but he was the really good looking one. The really good looking one. And so we imagine he came through, walked through, used to being welcomed because of the. Check it out, it's me, Eliab. Can make my pectoral muscles dance to Hava Nagila. Samuel says, "Nope, not that one." Abinadab the second comes through, takes center stage. Good-looking kid too. I can juggle poisonous snakes. Nope, Samuel says. Nope, that's not that one. I'm elaborating a little bit. It doesn't say that part in the text. Third son, Shammah, comes through. I can chop down a tree and carry it. He was all about the muscles. Puts it on. You want me to be your king? Throws it down. Samuel says, no. They keep going through till they're out of seven. All seven sons go through. No, 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 Samuel. Samuel's saying, okay, you brought me here. Samuel says, Are, anybody else, anywhere else? You have any other sons? Well, we got little Davy. Davy's out with the sheep. The word that they use to describe him is, is nar, a Hebrew word, which could mean child or adolescent, but probably not above adolescence. So he was the youngest of that clan, those brothers, that family, and so he had the worst job. Younger siblings, anybody? (laughs) So they go get David. Well, go get him, Jesse says, okay. They get him, bring him back, and it's interesting because the description After God tells us that it wasn't Eliab or Abinadab, he says, you humans, you look on the outside, I know the inside, I know their heart. That's the important thing. As if to say, you know, I chose Saul because he was head and shoulders above the rest. He was a good-looking guy. He was strong, powerful leader, and that didn't work. I'm going to focus more on the inside. not saying God was wrong. I'm just saying he's lifting up this notion that it's about the inside not the outside so David comes again would have been prepubescent perhaps or right in the zone there maybe short maybe gangly not coordinated yet catching up with your body kind of I remember playing soccer and being in that place I couldn't get all my limbs to work at the same time So David comes, and the brothers are, David, are you kidding? Look at him. Little Davy. that's the one that we, you know, throw in the well every once in a while and dip his head in the trough. I think he's bad now. I can't imagine back in the day. Oh, my goodness. So they bring David out, and God says, that's the guy. That's the one. He is ruddy has beautiful eyes, and is handsome. Well, didn't you just tell us it's not about the outside, it's about the inside that counts? My guess is that Samuel, the, the author, wanted us to know that he too was a good-looking kid. But God had made the point. It's about what's on the inside. Now, what had David done to earn being a king? Did he particularly manage the sheep in a faithful way? We, we don't know that. We're not to Dave, get David and Goliath yet. We're not to any of David's accomplishments. We're not to any of David's interactions. All we know is that he's a boy taking care of the sheep. And it may be just that clean slate, that open canvas that God needs. Hasn't yet developed all the cynicisms of the world those walls those defenses even figured out in great depth his relationship with god we know david is faithful we know he knows his scripture because he calls on god and quotes god uh, as we get to subsequent stories but we don't know a thing about why god chose him he knew his heart but my guess too is that he was a child and what a great place to start raising and tre- training people up, as Proverbs says. So Samuel does his thing. Here's the guy. Takes his oil. And if you remember, anointing was for a variety of reasons in the Old into the New Testament. Still, a lot of folks do that today. We may do that with a baptism now and again. Sometimes when we go visit folks, some oil can be used to pray over. So oil was an anointing was used for healing and also to set aside for a special service. What does the word Messiah in the Old Testament and Christ uh, in Hebrew and uh, Christ in Greek in the New Testament mean? The anointed one. That's what Messiah, the literal definition means. That's what the literal definition of Christ means. The anointed one. This only one set aside to do what only Christ Can do. Kings were anointed to be set aside for special service. When we baptize, they are being called into God's family, set aside for special uh, uh, welcome and service. So, anointing was a part of the tradition, especially for uh, kings and big shots, and of course, again, for healing. So, David is anointed. And it says the Spirit of God came upon him. What Scripture makes clear is that it left Saul and now comes upon David. And that's kind of where it ends. And then at the end, uh, Samuel goes back to Ramah where he started. The story stops and ends in Ramah, about five miles north of Jerusalem. That's where Samuel's from. Went to Bethlehem, back home to Ramah. What has changed in the story? Well, David's family and everybody there knew that he was anointed. But he wasn't yet king. He was chosen and anointed to be the future king. Saul still sits on the throne. David is still a shepherd. And our rough guess is that David is about 30 when he becomes and claims the throne and becomes king of Israel. So we're in about a 15 to 20 year window from this time where the shepherd boy gets anointed and the time he will claim for himself the monarchy. Lots will happen in between. We'll get to that in the next couple weeks. I love David's journey because it's our journey as well. So number one, God is working behind the scenes. Even though nothing really changes, Saul is still king. David is still a shepherd. But from this point, things will begin to happen in their parallel, and then they will cross big time in their paths and their journeys together. They will involve one another in specific ways. But now nothing has changed, but everything is getting ready to change. And sometimes I know we look at the world and we think, gosh, where is God? We don't see God. We want to see these miracles and know that God is active in the world. Trust me, friends, not only on a daily basis can we look out and find miracles, should we be looking for them to see God working in big ways? God is working behind the scenes. Through you, through me, through others in this world to try to bring people back to God. Jesus' main mission reconciled God and humanity. And we are to continue to do the same thing even when we don't see or feel direct change. And of course the second part of this, the one that we always kind of focus on in this passage because it's right and good, and that's what it says. That we are to work on looking at the heart of a person and not their exterior. We judge so much on how we look and how others look. Our culture thrives on beauty tips, fad diets, ab machines, Why? Because we want to look better. We want to be healthy. That's a part. Those two can often go together. But we judge so much by the way people look. And you don't need to throw that away. That's not all bad. If I come at you with a a gun in one hand and and a wrench in the other, and I'm running after you angry, You might judge me as being a threat. You need to turn and run, get out. Judging can influence us and help us, but it's just one part of the input as we meet people. It's okay to look at somebody, see how they're presenting themselves, because we do express ourselves through the way that we dress. If you see me at Publix and I look like this with the robe on, You know exactly who I am. You may say, "What are you doing?" But you may see me at Publix in shorts, a T-shirt, and a ball cap. You'll know that I'm probably not working that day, or I don't have a service, or you know, it relays information right away about the person. We can express ourselves in the T-shirts we wear, and the, the colors and styles and whatever. All that says a little, just a little bit about who people are, but what we are prone to do is to take the way that people look and make that 100% of what we know and think and make conclusions that may not be accurate. We put them in that box and we think, oh, I got it, I saw what she wore. Well, you don't, but it is some information. So you got a preacher box, I'm in there, I just ask you not to close the lid. Because as we get to know each other more, we're going to find out more things about each other. And you can continue to fill more of that box, as I will. And as you look and judge and meet people in the world, that is, I think, our challenge. Judge people fine. We're not, not going to do that. But don't let it just be on what we see on the outward experience and outward appearance. God says, I know the heart of people. And we are so manipulated by physical beauty you you think of songs and movies and books and public media obsessed with the way that we look physical attraction those of you that uh, know and and love c.s lewis and have read the screw tape letters this is right in the zone the the basic premise of the book is that there's a master devil his name is screw tape his little nephew coming up wormwood He's being sent out to procure a soul for hell from this man who has become a Christian, and Wormwood's having a hard time. He's an apprentice devil, new at it, trying to figure it out. So the master devil screw tape gives him some advice. And his advice is to try to find for this man a woman that really they don't get along with. They're not compatible. They're going to argue. There's going to be friction and frustration. They don't have anything in common. They don't really, they aren't going to like each other at all. And Wormwood says, well, what's going to make them marry? What's going to make them get together if they do all that? He says, you put all the focus on the eyes. You make them in essence attracted to each other And through their attraction, they will put all their cards and think that they are perfect for each other, that they love each other now and forever because they're good looking and physical intimacy is a part of that as well. And then when they do get married and they realize that there's so much more to life, then they'll be doomed when they really figure out who each other is, are. And we struggle with that as well. So hard when we're young to be called to one another. Romance is a part of that attraction. Of course, it's a part of who we are. We celebrate that. We should celebrate our sexuality. But so often we buy into the culture that makes it impossible for us to attain any kind of goal or standard of satisfaction because it's always presented in a way that is unattainable. And that's what Screwtape says let's do this. They will never be able to attain that level that they think because it's just physical external beauty. We'll get them that way. And God is saying, let us not be manipulated by it. And so hard, I know, I know. But we have to take that next step to seek the heart of a person not just the way they look. And again, you can make some, some, some conclusions, but don't close the box on them. You need to spend some time with them. You need more interactions. And then each time you put a little more in the box to figure out who they are, maybe that box will start to fill over the more time you spend with them, or maybe not. Maybe you had them figured out from the start. At Montreat this week, so we were there for a youth conference. So there were over a thousand young people from all over the country and the theme of the week was Lift Every Voice based on a hymn that's in the blue hymnal that we use in the chapel. It's not in in our one that's a little bit older that we use in here. Basically an African American hymn talking about the ills of slavery and oppression and freedom, redemption from that The idea that to lift every voice is just that, to empower others to lift their voice, to help us lift our own. What a great theme for young people. Get them to claim their voice, realize they have one, and to lift it for the ways they believe God calling us and them to to use it as God does for all of us. So it was a really interesting conference. There was a lot of lefty and righty conversations. About politics, there were a lot of majority-minority conversations in their small groups. So they, we all come together in the morning, keynote speaker, uh, uh, music. Uh, uh, we do little energizers they call them, we dances to wake us up, that kind of thing. And then they go to small groups as a laboratory to kind of process what's just been presented to them. And they did things like having mock debates about silly topics, but the topic wasn't the issue, it was practicing disagreeing safely and with respect. Holy moly, how do we get our government to go to a Montreat Youth Conference? How do we get the leaders of our businesses, our communities, our churches, all of us, to this place where we can practice how to disagree with folks and still know that we are all God's children. And you know what? It was hard and it didn't always work. Feelings were hurt, but voices were lifted. More, this year, more than any youth conference I can remember, it was a practical application that we used there that is difficult. Because when you truly do community building, you truly do kingdom building, It means you're gonna sit down with folks that we see as being very different than ourselves, different political views, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, different stations in life, different experiences, racial differences. But for God's kingdom, this is exactly what our work is being called to. And at the core of that is knowing the heart of one that you think is so different than you how many people do we know in marginalized groups and everybody's marginalized at some point, everybody and that kind of comes and goes but those who live their lives on the margins any group we are tempted to say they too how many people do you know within that group that you have regular conversation with So a lot of what we found this week was that in getting to know uh, conservative youth talking with liberal youth, centrist youth talking with extreme youth, youth who have no understanding of politics and those who are completely immersed in it, that when we sit down together and seek to know one another's heart, all of a sudden it raises above, which team do you play for? It rises above which political team do you play for, which means which set of values do you think are all right and the others are all wrong. When we know one another's heart, and it's hard work, and it's not easy, but the more we can reach out to those groups, especially the ones that we catch ourselves saying they, the more we get to know one another's hearts, And if we can do that with a sense of respect, even though there's a lot at stake, even though there's a lot of passion, even though there's a lot of love and faith, and we know that we're right from what God tells us, well, so are folks on the other side of whatever issue. We get and seek to know one another's heart. This world will change. I can't control politicians. That is a broken system. As great as our country is, it is a broken system with power and greed and questionable motives for seeking office and then being in office, no matter who's in office or what side is predominant. But we as Christians should be better and rise above all of that mess. Not to mean that you don't take a stand. Of course you do, and you use your faith to do it. But you may believe differently on an issue than I do. But if we know that we are loved by God and we respect one another for what we're trying to do, then we have risen above. We get to know the heart of one another. And even if we can't agree, we can respect one another. That's the only way we can move forward. And we have to be the example for everybody else because it just ain't gonna happen out there. It's just gonna get worse. So let us literally take to heart what God is lifting up here. Number one, through David's anointing, we know that God is at work behind the scenes. Whether we see it or feel it or not, fear not, fret not, God is with us and God continues every day to transform this world and especially through us if we allow that. And secondly, work on the heart of those that you get to know, both people you love and people you don't, people who challenge you that you think are so wrong and stupid and destructive and dangerous. Maybe that's your boss, maybe that's an odd person, in your friendship group, somebody in your family, politicians, could even be your preacher. Not me, but maybe others, I don't know. The more we can stop, keep that box open for that group of people or that person and say, hey, would you go have a cup of coffee with me? I, I don't agree with you. I just, I just want to hear kind of where you are. Those were the conversations we had at Montreat. And they were hard. I don't know that we resolved a lot, but they practiced this kingdom living. And I was so proud of them and all of us because it was so hard. That's why it's not done and not easier because it's hard. But the call is clear. We are to judge on the heart, so let us, with our open hearts, go and transform the world with God's help. Hallelujah. Amen.